Good evening. It's Palm Sunday, the day of praise. It's the day we praise God. We've been doing that now. Isn't it awesome? Um, thanks, Chris. I have a Palm Sunday baby. My youngest daughter, her name is Holly. She was born on Palm Sunday weekend. And every time I see her, my heart is filled with joy and praise to God. Uh, my oldest son was born during Lent. So when I see him, I think, wow, we need the mercy and the grace of God in our lives. Great kid, loves the Lord, and uh, just uh, just following after God with all of his heart. And then my middle child, daughter Anne-Marie, was born in June. She's a summer baby. She's Pentecost. And so whenever I see her, I think of how God sends us his spirit and blesses us. But it's uh, Palm Sunday. It's the day of worship and praise. Jesus said that the Father is seeking for worshipers. He seeks worshipers. Those who will worship Him in spirit and in truth. Those who will worship Him from within, from the spirit. And those who will worship Him according to truth. Not just how I feel like it, how I interpret God, how I understand God, but how He reveals Himself in the truth of His Word. Today's Palm Sunday. We're going to look at the text for Palm Sunday, which is Matthew 21. If you want to turn your Bible there. There's some Bibles on the racks in front of you. We'll look at Matthew chapter 21. If you brought your Bible, turn there with me and read along. Matthew 21 is the story of the triumphal entry. The triumphal entry is recorded in all four Gospels, the three synoptics and the Johannine Gospel. That's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then John. And they all look at it from a different perspective. But we'll read Matthew's. We'll hear a little bit from Luke too today. Listen and hear God's Word. Now when the, they drew near to Jerusalem... He came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd sped their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is prophet, the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please pray with me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our Redeemer. Amen. So we're going to look at preparing the way of the Lord. How this uh, scripture talks to us about more than praise. Uh, this We're going to peel the onion back, look a little deeper into this passage and see that there's a lot there that's intend, intended for us to see. First of all, what's the larger context here? Jesus is going into Jerusalem during the season of Passover. He's going to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. So let me just take you back in time for a moment and let's recall Passover, what that's all about. Passover is one of the great feasts of Israel. 
And it commemorates a time when God brought Israel out of slavery and bondage in Egypt. And the Passover was one of the plagues. God spoke to Moses and said, Go to Pharaoh and tell him, Let my people go. And what did, what did Pharaoh say? No way, Jose. They're not going. So God brought seven, excuse me, ten plagues upon Israel, upon Egypt, to, in order that Pharaoh would let Israel go. The tenth plague was the death of the firstborn of every household. And so the angel of death passed through Egypt. But God had spoken to Moses and said, Tell all, all of the Hebrew people, to take a lamb and slaughter the lamb and take the blood of the lamb, take some hyssop, which is like a little paintbrush made out of brushes, some reeds, and dip it into the bowl of blood and mark the lintel and the doorpost. Let me do that one more time. Take the blood of the lamb and mark the lintel and the doorpost. And when you do that, the death angel will see the blood of the lamb and will pass over your home and every firstborn in your home will live and not die. And so the angel of death came through Egypt. Every home that had the blood of the lamb marked upon it was passed over and every home that did not, the life of the firstborn was taken. And so Pharaoh had a firstborn son. His son died that night and that was the, the straw that broke the camel's back, so to speak. And Pharaoh let, his, let the people of Israel go. But notice how even in the marking of the doorways with the blood of the Lamb, the cross is prefigured. The Passover was this feast that commemorated how death passed over every Hebrew house marked with the blood of the Lamb. So Jesus is now riding into Jerusalem at Passover. He Himself is the Passover Lamb. He's coming to become the Passover Lamb. The sacrifice of all sacrifices that will end all the blood sacrifices for all the time. There's no more need to shed blood for remission of sin because Christ shed His holy blood on the cross for the sins of all humanity. Jesus is our Passover lamb. You'll notice that Jesus comes into Jerusalem riding a war horse, right? No, He's not on a war horse. He's on a donkey. But most kings, when they came into cities, rode in on a war horse. Right? I spent a little time at FOB War Horse in Bakubai, Iraq. Anybody else been there? Uh, yeah, okay. So you've been there. And uh, I didn't see a lot of horses, though. I saw a lot of donkeys with IEDs inside of them. But anyway, uh, we properly disposed of those. But um, there was a movie recently made about War Horse, Steven Spielberg film. And uh, I saw Robert Cowart. Uh, doing an enlist, a photo of an re-enlistment, and, and you were on a first cab horse uh, for the re-enlistment of that uh, soldier. And they were on war horses. They were not on donkeys, let me assure you. First cab horses. And uh, it was awesome. Great photo. So when kings and warriors ride into city, they ride war horses. They don't ride donkeys. So why is Jesus riding a donkey? Because he comes in peace. He also comes to fulfill the prophet Zechariah who said in Zechariah 9.9, Behold, your king is coming to you humble on a donkey. And that's the point. Jesus is coming in humility to the city of Jerusalem. He's coming not to sack the city, not to overpower the city, but He's coming in humility to love and to serve the city. So think of yourself as the city. If you're a city of Jerusalem, how does your king come to you? 
He comes to you in humility. He's not coming knocking down the door of your heart. He's knocking on the door asking you to invite Him in so that He might give you His peace. Jesus is the King of peace. The crowd says something amazing that also identifies Jesus. They say, Hosanna to the Son of David. Whoa, time out. Where's all this Son of David talk coming from? Well, David was like a thousand years earlier, right? But David was one of the great kings of Israel. One of the three kings that governed over the monarchy of Israel. The, uh, the unified Israel. All the tribes. And that would have been Saul, David, and Solomon. After Solomon, the kingdom split into Israel and Judea. And from there it was a downhill slide. All the Israel was ransacked and taken off to Babylon. And all that was left was little Judea. And that was eventually done away with as well. But under David's leadership, under David's kingship, David was a great warrior leader, great warrior king. Under his leadership, Israel expanded its borders to its greatest extent in history. They also just totally whipped up on their arch enemies, the Philistines, during that whole period. David just had an ability, an anointing, an insight, a strategic uh, ability to go out and just take the, the Philistines every time that he engaged them. And so Saul, the people would sing, Saul has killed his thousands, but David has killed his tens of thousands. So they had heard all the crowds in Jesus' time had heard all this great talk about him. And they thought, wow, maybe Jesus coming to the city, riding on the donkey, maybe he's the one, the son of David, who will come and get rid of the Romans, throw out all of our oppressors, reestablish the greatness, the sovereignty of Israel at Jerusalem and expand our uh, our territories once again. And so the crowds went before him in verses 9 through 11. And they went before him and they followed him and they were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. But see, Jesus was not coming to establish a political kingdom. He was coming once again to love and serve the city, to be the sacrifice, to be the Passover lamb, to give his life for the city and for all. He was not coming to plant his standard and to ride in on a war horse and to set up his earthly kingdom. He was coming to become the sacrifice. They also say that he's a prophet. Jesus the prophet. The crowd prepared the way for the Lord to enter into Jerusalem. And as they did so, they spread their cloaks on the ground and they went and cut palm branches and they laid those on the ground too. Why were they doing that? They were making the pathway, the roadway smooth coming into Jerusalem. And this is much like our great Texas highway system. If you've ever been out driving in any Texas roads, you'll notice we've cut into hills, big machinery. We've filled in the valleys, just like Isaiah said. Right? Isaiah said he was one of the prophets. And historically, the prophets prepare the way of the Lord with a message of repentance. And Isaiah said, in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up. Every mountain shall be made low. And the uneven ground shall become level in rough places of plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. So Isaiah 40 is saying that to prepare the way of the Lord, we got to bring the high places down, raise up the low places, and make it smooth so that the Lord can come in. And what's he talking about? He's talking about bringing down pride and obstacles and barriers in our lives, 
lifting up low self-esteem and feeling unworthiness, filling in the low places, making it level and smooth so that the Lord can come into our lives, our cities, our families, our communities. Isaiah prophesied this. And John the Baptist came. He came as a prophet. He came with a very powerful message. And what was his message? Repent. How do we prepare the way of the Lord? He says, repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And what is repentance? Turning away from that which is wrong. Turning toward that which is right. Loving what is right and good and pleasing to the Lord. And he also said this in Luke 3.8. Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. What? What does that mean? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. In other words, if you're going to call yourself a Christian, be a Christian in word and in deed. If you're going to follow Christ, then follow Christ with all of your heart. Don't just be a Christian on Sundays. Be consistent throughout the week and through the year. Love the Lord with all your heart, not part of your heart. All your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Jesus prophesied this same message. He said, repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And even though expectations of political rule are misplaced by some as Jesus is entering into Jerusalem, and there are even religious leaders who are saying, Jesus, tell your disciples to be quiet. Even though all that's going on, Jesus acknowledges the praise of His disciples. And the praise of the city, and He said, you know what? This is right, and this is good, and it's commendable. If you look over at Luke chapter 19, just flip over to Luke. This is Luke's version of the story of the uh, triumphal entry. Luke 19, verses 39 to 40 says this. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. They're too noisy. They're stirring everything up. They're disrespectful. They're not acknowledging us. They're all focused on you. Tell your disciples to be quiet. Rebuke them. And Jesus answers them, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Now, I don't know if any of you have ever been to Israel, but there's a lot of stones in Israel. I haven't been to Israel yet, but the pictures that I've seen and the stories that I've heard, one of the reasons maybe they used to stone a bunch of people. They're just rocks and stones everywhere. But Jesus is saying, it's good and it's right that my disciples and the people of this city should praise me. I'm not going to tell them to be quiet. I'm not going to tell them to be silent. So what is Jesus saying to us? Our lives are to be in praise of Him. He wants us to praise Him and to worship Him. Again, remember, He taught us in John chapter 3 and chapter 4, the Father is seeking worshipers, those who will worship the Father in spirit and truth. And Jesus came to guide us into that relationship because He said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Me. Jesus is the truth of true worship. Jesus is the way to worship, the truth of worship, and He is the life of our worship. Jesus is our prophet. Now it's curious to me that the two stories immediately following this story in Matthew 21 stand out and actually reinforce what's going on in Matthew 21, the triumphal entry. If you look just at the pericopes right after Matthew 21, the one we just read on the triumphal entry, you'll see a little story on the fig tree, and you'll see another little story on Jesus cleansing the temple. So what does Jesus do? He rides into the city, humble, on a donkey. People are praising them. He gets, tells, you know, they tell him, tell your disciples to shut up. No, I'm not going to tell them because this is good and right. 
This is the way it's supposed to be. People are supposed to live in praise of me. And he comes into the city, but he doesn't plan his standard and say, I am the king. Instead, he goes back out of the city for the night. And on his way out, he sees a fig tree. And he's hungry. And when he sees the fig tree, there's no figs on the fig tree. And so he says, Cursed are you. May you never bear fruit again. And then he goes on. And uh, I just always thought that that story was, was unique. And I didn't really have a lot of insight on that. It's one of those hard sayings of Jesus. You'd think that everywhere Jesus went, there'd be butterflies and sunshine and fig trees blossoming and lots of figs on them and such. And he could certainly do that. So then what's the point of this story? Well, the point is that Jesus wants us to bear fruit. Even John said the axe is at the root of the tree. And if you do not bear fruit, you'll be cut down and cast into the fire. Jesus wants our lives to bear fruit. Fig trees should bear figs. Christians should bear the fruit of the Spirit. If we're going to say that, we love, that we're following Jesus and call ourselves Christians, our lives should produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Now the second story that follows the triumphal entry is the cleansing of the temple. Jesus goes into the temple of all places. And he doesn't go to the, city, the center of the city, but goes to the temple. He doesn't set up his uh, kingdom or in a palace. He goes to the temple, the place that's supposed to be the spiritual center, the spiritual heartbeat of the city. And what does he see in the temple? Money changers. And he gets angry. He gets upset. People are tricked. Because what happened was a sacrificial system that was designed to mirror or express what would happen on the cross had become corrupt. And people were all about selling doves and bulls and, and trading and commerce and all this uh, usury was going on uh, in the temple. And Jesus sees this and he forms a whip from cords. And he begins driving out, whipping and driving out the money changers, overturning their tables. He's pretty upset. And drives them out. What does he say? You've made my father's house a den of robbers and thieves. But my father's house is a house of prayer for all nations. So Jesus is establishing his intent for our lives. He wants to come into our lives and he wants our lives to be a house of prayer. He comes into the temple and he's very intense in driving out those things in our lives that are greedy and manipulative. And if we're all about, all we're after is, is gain and money and conducting commerce and manipulating people and charging usury, if that's all that we're about, that's a shallow distortion of what God's will is for our lives. Our, our lives, are, each of us is like a temple and our lives are to be a house of prayer. A place from where God lives and from which we constantly commune with the Father. And the fig tree. Again, Jesus does not want our lives to be barren. He wants our lives to be fruitful. But there will be judgment for those who are unfruitful. And so Jesus is the just judge. That's demonstrated by the fig tree, the story of the fig tree and the temple. That He is our just judge. So the reform paradigm for understanding Jesus is that He is our prophet, he is our priest, our sacrifice, and he is our king.
prophet, priest, and king. And He's our judge. So as the just judge, He's the best judge we can ever have. Anybody ever got a speeding ticket in Texas? They're not very cheap, are they? They got that thing now where you can do the online class, you know, and get it off your record anyway, but it still costs money to do all that. So my advice is when you're on 190, especially on the feeder, go 45. Don't go more than 50 because that's where they love to get you. You get those tickets and go stand before the judge, right? And you got to tell the judge what your intent is, what you're going to do to resolve this matter. And when you stand before the judge, you hope that you're getting a fair judge, right? You hope you're getting a good judge. Well, one day we will all stand before the judge. And Jesus is the just judge. He's the best judge we can have. If I'm ever going to stand before someone's judgment, I want to stand before Jesus. Because He is the just judge. And He's going to give me an accurate, true picture of what's going on in my life. And you know what? He can do that even every day if we just stand before Him and say, Lord, search my heart. See if there's anything in me that is offensive and doesn't please You. Point that out to me, Lord, by Your grace, by Your Spirit, by Your insight, by Your Word, so that I can change my life and conform my life to Your will and to Your way. Jesus is our just judge. Wow, so that's a lot, right? He's our Passover lamb. He is uh, the, the son of David. He's uh, the king of peace. He is the prophet. How then shall we live? He's our just judge. How then shall we live? How do we prepare the way of the Lord? Again, the people were laying out cloaks and palm branches and saying, Welcome into our city, Jesus. You're awesome. Praise you. Hosanna, son of David. Hosanna, blessed is you who comes in the name of the Lord. How do we today welcome Jesus into our lives, into our communities, into our family? You know, I mentioned my, my children at the beginning of the sermon tonight. Because it was always my desire when I had kids. I wanted them to love the Lord. I mean, if it, 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 it didn't matter to me what else they did. I wanted them to know the Lord and His salvation and to love the Lord. And that was like, how do you do that for 20 years? How do you raise up a child in the way in which they, they should go? Well, this morning we had a dedication of a child and we were reminded to raise that child in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. The nurture, the love, and the admonition, the teaching, the truth of God's Word. So, Linda and I endeavored these last, what is it now, 25 years, to raise our three kids up to love the Lord. And you know what? There's been some bumps on the road, and it hasn't been pretty. But, they all have the Lord in their hearts and are following after the Lord. And my guidance on that is, you know, the best way to raise up children in the Lord to be disciples is to be a disciple yourself. Be a committed Christian. Love the Lord. And they will see that. And they'll see you go through trials and hardships and scary things and joyful things and happy times, good times and bad times and ugly times. And they'll see how you respond and how you get through those times. And they will see how you handle stress and pressure. And they'll see whether or not your heart is truly devoted to the Lord. They will see that. And they will know. And that's, that's a big part of raising kids up in the, the nurture and admonition of the Lord so that they'll love the Lord with all their hearts when they get older. How do we prepare the way of the Lord? Four things. Jesus is worthy of our praise, right? He's the King of glory. He's the King of peace. He's the Prince of peace. He's the 
the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's the just judge. He's the Son of David. He's our true prophet. And He is worthy of our praise. I remember one time I went to church with a friend in college. The pastor gave some kind of motivational talk about why, why we needed to sing out to God. And so we stood up and opened our hymnals and started singing. And my friend, she just sat down and said, I don't feel like praising God today. Anybody ever feel like that? Or know anybody said anything like that? I just don't feel like it right now. Well, you know what? You have that right. You're a free American. You're an individual, right? You're not an automaton. You can do whatever you want. I just don't feel like praising God right now. Well, okay, great. But where's the focus at right now? It's on me. I don't feel like praising God right now. But when you realize He's worthy of our praise, something changes. And I sat down next to Faye. I said, hey, Faye, you know what? We're not worshiping God because the pastor said to worship God. We're worshiping God because He is worthy of our praise. She stood up and opened up her hymnal and started singing out. When you understand that Jesus is worthy of our praise, that He's the focus, the object of our attention, that changes, changes your, your mindset and it just sets you free. We don't sing in here to please men. We, the, the, the team doesn't lead worship to please everybody's uh, sensibilities. Uh, we, we do what we do with full hearts and full passion to please God. And I love that about Grace Bible Church. I love it that we, we just go for it. You know, whether it's worship or the Word or children's ministry, serving kids in the nursery or small groups, whatever it is, man, we go for it. We go for it. And I love that. Uh, in fact, I think it's really curious that for most of my life as a musician, I've been told in churches, turn it down! Turn it down! You're too loud! Right? I mean, I've been told that my whole life. Somehow God gave me the grace though to keep playing and not quit and get all bitter. Just kept playing. I'd listen. When the pastor came running that back from the... You know, he'd be out there greeting people and all of a sudden he'd be funking it up, getting ready for the service. He'd come running up, Turn it down! This was the first church I ever came to where somebody said, Turn it up! <laughs> and I think that's great. Don't get me wrong. There are seasons in life where we need to be quiet and we need to be still and know that He is God. I, I get that. But there are also times when we just need to go for it. And today is one of those days, Palm Sunday, and that's why we're just singing with all of our hearts and our loving and worshiping the Lord with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. So He's worthy of our praise and He commends our praise. Because if we don't do it, he says, the stones and the other, the rest of creation, the inanimate objects will cry out in praise to God. So he wants and intends that we, living human beings, sons and daughters, redeemed of the Lord, should sing praise to him. And Jesus calls us to a life of repentance. You know there's two kinds of repentance in the Bible. Did you know that? There's two kinds of repentance. Second Corinthians 7.10 describes two kinds of repentance. There's the repentance that leads to life. And there's a repentance that leads to death. You know what the repentance that leads to death looks like? It's like when you tell your little kid to tell, say, I'm sorry to your sister. And they say, I'm sorry. But it doesn't really come from here. Right? They're just doing it to fulfill the law. The law of mom and dad says, you shall say, you are sorry. And so they say, I'm sorry. But really, it's not coming from here. But isn't it beautiful when they get it and they say, I'm sorry. Now see, that's the repentance that leads to life. And it's not just an intonation. It comes from the heart. When we grow up, it looks something like this. Repentance that leads to death is the repentance that says, I cheated on my life and I'm sorry that I got... I cheated on my wife, but I'm sorry that I got caught. 
I'm sorry that I got caught. But there, that's repentance that leads to death. And it doesn't change. If I could get away with it, I would keep doing it. But the repentance that leads to life says, I'm sorry. I need to make things right. I need to dig deep inside me and figure out what it is that's going inside of me that makes me want to do that and not bond with my wife and, and grow together with her and to be fulfilled in my marital covenant. That's repentance that leads to life. So there's two kinds of repentance. Guess which one Jesus wants you to have? Guess which one is the fig tree that bears figs? And guess which one is the fig tree that doesn't bear any figs? The repentance that leads to life bears fruit. The repentance that is just temporary and worldly grief, I'm sorry I got caught, produces death. Jesus calls us to a lifestyle of repentance. It's not just I prayed the prayer in 1972 when I trusted Jesus and I'm forgiven, hallelujah. It's every day looking inside the cave of your heart and saying, what in my life do I need to trans needs to be transformed by God's grace? I mean, I wake up every day and I start my day with a prayer that goes something like this. Jesus, have mercy on me, a sinner. Forgive me for my sins and raise me up in the power of your spirit. That I can serve you and serve the people in my life and do your will. Help me, Lord. I mean, if I get a, if that's my 30-second prayer, it pretty much goes something like that. Jesus wants us to live a life of repentance daily, changing, growing, developing, becoming more like Him. Conforming to His standards. You know, in the army, we always talk about there's always standards in the army. There's a standard for everything. Right? And every NCO trains everybody to that standard. We train to the standard, right? In the same way, we need our hearts transformed so that we rise to God's standards. And I've always wondered about people who don't even want to try that. What? I don't even want to try. Why not? You were created to be glorious and to be awesome and to live according to that standard. And if you keep falling short on your own power, hey, try God's power, God's help. He can help us achieve the standard of holy living. And I love that that's what Pastor Dave's been preaching on out of Ephesians for the last several weeks. And that's my last point. Jesus calls to live according to the praise of His glorious grace. That's kind of the recurring theme in the first couple of chapters of Ephesians. That you were created and designed and redeemed and predestined and called to live to the praise of His glorious grace. And all that means is your life, you're called to always point to Him. Not just in your words, but in your thoughts and, and clearly in your actions and the way that you conduct yourself, the way you live your life. Our lives are to be lived to the praise of His glorious grace. And I love that concept because His glorious grace is that very source, that very power that we need to live that kind of life. So there's this cycle of relationship and communion with Him where we receive His grace, we live to His glory, the praise of His glorious grace, and we get even more grace. Grace upon grace here at Grace Bible Church. That's how we're to live. Jesus is worthy of our praise. He commends our praise. Uh, he calls us to a life of repentance. And He calls us to live to the praise of His glorious grace. Having therefore received the Lord, if you've trusted the Lord Jesus Christ for your salvation, if you believe in grace, if you've received the promise of uh, inherited the promise of eternal life, then live to the praise of His glorious life.
of His glorious grace. Every day, wake up and look for how you can live in praise to God. That is worship in spirit and truth. Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for coming into our cities, into our lives, our, our families, our community, exactly the same way that you came into Jerusalem. You came humble. You came to bring peace. You came to be the Passover lamb. You came to bring truth and justice. You came to bring life. And so we receive you and welcome you, Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life. Help us to live in praise of your glorious grace. I make this prayer in your name, Jesus. Amen.